0: Okay, we're getting here on the middle of Bet Amud Aleph. The Gemara here is discussing what we started at the bottom of the previous Amud, which is that Ula Barav had a question of Ravah, which is on Rosh Chodesh. How do we structure the laning? We're supposed to get four aliyot out of the laning, and we have a limited scope of sukim that we can utilize for the laning. How do we break it up to make it work? Now, the mere fact that Ravah responds to Ula Barav and says, Zulo Shamati, I didn't hear about this, but I heard something similar, shows you that there was not necessarily a fixed practice about how to lane on Rosh Chodesh, because otherwise Rav Bo should have just known it from the fact that they lane that way in the Beit Midrash. Instead, he brings a Gemara that we saw in Tanit with regards to how they split up the laning for the Mamadot. And that is because in the beginning of Breshit, where they read from Aseh Breshit each day of the Mamadot, the first day they read from Breshit and Hirakiya, And Breshit has five psukim in it, and here, like here, has three psukim in it, so the same problem. How do I divide that up into three aliyot without violating the principle that is going to become more apparent in today's daf, which is that one is not allowed to leave less than three psukim in a parsha, and one is not allowed to start with less than three psukim in a par-shia. And That's because of gzerah, mishum, anichnasim, We're afraid that if somebody walks in and sees you starting with less than two psukim away from the beginning of the parashiyah, they will assume that the previous aliyah got just two psukim, and then they will make the mistaken assumption that you don't need three psukim for someone to get an aliyah, and vice versa, if someone finishes off an aliyah with less than two psukim left, if someone then leaves the shul at that point in time, they will be led to think that possibly the next aliyah was just going to be two psukim, because that's how much is left until the end of the parashiyah. And again, they'll make the mistaken assumption that you do not require a minimum of three psukim for an aliyah. For those reasons, we have to now come up with a solution when you have a breakdown of sukim that doesn't allow division by three in order to come up with the proper aliot. So here with regards to the mamadot, we said that the five sukim, you have two choices. Rob's option is that you read Aleph, Bet, and Gimel for the first aliyah. Then you repeat Gimel for the second aliyah, Gimel, Dalid He. And then for the third aliyah, you read Vav, Zayin, and Chet, which is the next section, next parashiyah. So that would be the solution according to Rav, which is called doleit. We repeat one pasuk in order to get three psukim for each aliyah, despite the fact that we were going to end up with a problem, which is that the... Aliyah, between split between the first and second Aliyah, you're going to end less than two psukim away, and you're going to start with less than two psukim away. Nevertheless, that's the best solution we have, and that's what Rav suggests. Shmuel, on the other hand, has a solution that says, I don't want to do what Rav said, because I'm going to then violate that principle of leaving less than two psukim at the end, and beginning with less than two psukim. So my solution is to take pasuk gimel and split it in half. Say that we'll stop halfway through the pasuk. The first aliyah will be two and a half sukim, and the second aliyah will be two and a half sukim. That's called pulezik, which is that I divide up the pasuk, and then the third aliyah will be vav chet, the next parshiyah. Rab does not like Shmuel's position because he says kol pasuk to lo paskinan Moshe Rabbeinu. Any pasuk that was not divided by Moshe Rabenu, we don't have a right to come and arbitrarily divide it. That could be read in one of two ways: either that that's not allowed to divide it up; it's improper. It's something that we are not empowered to do. Or it could be that splitting the Pasuk up doesn't do anything for you because when you read two and a half sukim, you didn't read three sukim And when you read two and a half Sukim again, you still didn't read three sukim and then you didn't accomplish what you wanted because reading half a Pasuk is not the equivalent of reading a full Pasuk. And therefore you have not met the minimum standard of reading three sukim for individuals. Shmuel, as we noted already before, doesn't love Rav's solution because it leaves two at the end or two in the beginning. And if Mishum Nechnasim yotzim. Makes it that we don't want to do that. Now, the Gemara then, based on Rav's suggestion, lifts that and says, we'll do the same thing by Rosh Chodesh. By Rosh Chodesh, to solve a problem, we'll either be Posaik, like Shmuel will split a Pasuk in half, or Doleg will double up a Pasuk. We already discussed at the end of yesterday's daf the different opinions of how that works exactly by Rosh Chodesh, and we'll discuss it again when we get a little further down today's daf. Mara also spoke about a dispensation that was granted to Rab Kara, the Malame Tinokot from Rav Khanina Hagadol, who permitted him to break the Psukim up into smaller component parts, not into the full Pasuk, in order to make it easier for the young children to learn it. But that was because of a extenuating circumstance in order for the children to learn, but otherwise we would not permit it. And Shmuel says about that, just like that was an extenuating circumstance that was permitted. So too, our situation here is that we're left with no choice, and therefore it's an extenuating circumstance where we have to allow the pasuk to be broken in half. The Gemara now begins with metave. We have a question from a breita so that speaks about laning in general, that says, Sukim. If you have a parshia that contains within its six pasukim, You can split that up into two aliyot, one of three sukim one of three biyachid. But if you have a parshia that contains five sukim, which is a problem that we're dealing with here, both with the Chodesh and with regards to the Mamadot in Breshit. You have a Parsha that has five P'sukim. So when you have five P'sukim, the Brita says, then you have to have only one Aliyah. You can't break it into separate Aliyot because you don't have sufficient number of P'sukim. Now, Karari Shon Shloshah, if it happened to be that the first one read three P'sukim, Hashini Koresh Naimi Parshazo, then the next one reads the remaining two P'sukim, out of those five, and then one pasuk from the next parshia in order to make up his three psukim. So this is less than an ideal situation, but somebody made a mistake and read the three psukim and stopped. That was the first aliyah. So now the second aliyah needs three psukim. He'll get the two that remain in the parshia and then one from the next parashiyah, and that'll comprise the three psukim that he needs. That's the view of the Tanakama. But there's an alternate view that shloshah, that in the next parshia he reads two from the main of this parsha and three from the next parsha. parsha Because wherever we can avoid it, we don't want to go into a parsha, just one pasuk. We want to go three psukim into the parshia so that we don't have this problem of someone thinking that you started less than three psukim away from the beginning, that someone else got the previous aliyah was less than three psukim. Vimita. According to the answers that we had before, the mandamar doleh niglog. According to Rav, who says that you repeat a pasuk, why don't we repeat a pasuk here? mandamar posekh nifsuk and according to Shmuel it says that we split the puzzle in the middle, then you should split the puzzle in the middle here as well. Now Rashi claims that the Girsu of the Gemara is incorrect, that the question here is only on Rav, because the situation is a Bidiyavad situation. They already read three psukim. There's nothing more that you can do at this point to say, split the pasuk in half. Shmuel's solution is only an a priori solution. It's a solution before the fact, where I know already that I need to have five psukim split into two aliyot. But here, we I have five psukim, and he already read three psukim, you can't go back and split the pasuk. And therefore, it's not a question on Shmuel, because Shmuel, in this case, would not say to be pasik. It's only a question on the one who says doleg, which is Rav. So why don't we go back and repeat the last pasuk of the aliyah, of the first person's aliyah? and that way we could have the five psukim covered. We take the three that the first one read, now go back and read the third pasuk again, and then read four and five, and then that would solve the problem. Why are we just continuing on, reading two psukim, and then reading into the next parshia? So that sounds like there's a different solution to the problem, and we don't permit, to, like, we don't allow you to repeat psukim. Pelsvot says that even according to Shmuel, there is a problem, because Shmuel says, when you have the opportunity to read paskinan, that's what we do. But absent that choice... He would also agree with Rav that you have to do something, and therefore he would also say delay. And that goes back to what is the makhlog between Rav and Shmuel. They both posit possible solutions to a very difficult situation, and they're both subpar, so how do I know which one to pick? So the Rash book claims that the makhlog between them is, what do I put the emphasis on? According to Rav, the people coming to the shul late and leaving early are not so common, and therefore it's not such a big deal to have an exception to the rule in this case, where we double over a pasuk, even though it starts less than two away and finishes less than two away, nevertheless, it's still a better solution than doing something that's totally out of the box, which is splitting a pasuk in half. Whereas Schmoll says that, and if they are surprised by the issue, they'll ask questions about it. That's what we'll see later on in the Gemara. Schmoll says that people's tendency is not to ask questions, they just go off with their own assumptions, and they come to the wrong conclusions. And therefore, better to do something that's out of the box, like split the pasuk, So that people know for sure that we're doing something unusual. And since it's unusual, they would then ask questions about it or figure out what's happening here because of this unusual circumstance. Now, in a case where that option is no longer available to Shmuel, then he definitely would agree with Rob that you do delay because... That's another solution. He just prefers his solution. But if he doesn't have his solution, he thinks that Rob's solution would work as well. Therefore, the Ba'i Tosafot suggests that the question is on Shmuel as well. Even though it's not about Poseik, but it's about Doleg Nidlog, that question applies both to Rob and Shmuel. And then the Ritva makes a suggestion that the question applies to both of them, and that's based on where you think the question's from. Right now, we think that the question's from the latter half of the Breitta, which is someone who read three psukim out of a five Pasuk, parsia, what do we do once we get to that situation? In that case, Rashi says, Poseik is no longer relevant, Doleg is the only thing you're going to ask a question about. Then the Ritva says the questions from the first part of the Braidah. first part of the Braidah says, if you have a Parshiyah of six, you read it with two, and have a of five, you only read it with one individual. According to Rav, why can't you read two individuals with five sukim? According to Shmuel, why can't you do it? You have the solution of Poseik or Doleg. How come we don't use that solution? Why is the Braidah not even consider... That solution, to which the Gemara answers, Shine That in that case, where we're talking about regular laning, like on a Monday and Thursday, you have a safety valve. The safety valve is that you can keep reading in the Parshiot. And as long as something is topically relevant, you can keep reading Psukim to fill in the deficit that you have. Our problem is that by the Mamadot, we only want to read the first two days of creation, and therefore we're stuck with the Parshiot 5 Psukim, Parshiot 3 Psukim, and we can't go past there because that's the next day's leaning. If that's the case, now I have to come up with a solution with the limited resource of psukim that I have. Same thing by Rosh Chodesh. Rosh Chodesh, I'm limited because I have the parsha Tamid that has eight psukim. I have the Parshat of Shabbat which has two psukim, and the Parshat of Rosh Chodesh has five psukim. I can't go past there because the next psukim deal with Pesach, have nothing to do with Rosh Chodesh. You're not going to read past that point. That's not true on your classic Monday and Thursday where you're reading the beginning of the Parshat Shavua. So if you make a mistake, or you only have five psukim in a parsha, and then somebody makes a mistake you have to read onward, or you can't offer another aliyah on those five sukim, then you're just going to read on in the parsha. And that's totally permissible. So according to the way that Rashi views it, the question comes in the latter half of the b'raita. Then the solution to the problem is that we keep reading in the parsha. That's the solution that's brought by the Tanakhama and by the Yeshomrim, just how much further you read in the parsha. That's a better solution because you have the option to continue leaning. And that'll be your solution. That's your safety valve. According to the Ritva, the question is, why are the five sukim only one aliyah? Because you have an option to bring in a second aliyah from after the five psukim, you have more to read. There's no limit in what you can read because you have a whole parsha of that's still topically relevant, and therefore you have the ability to add on psukim, which is not the case by Rosh Chodesh and by the mamadot. The locha is like the yeshurim, which means that when it comes to a parsha of five psukim, and if someone makes a mistake and stops after three psukim, then the next aliyah is the remaining two psukim in that parsha. And you must read at least three psukim into the next parashia. Now, Rabbi Tan, Choram, Rabbi and Levi say about the Yeshomrim, similar to the fact that they say over here that you must start at least a minimum of three psukim, they also say you may not finish off with less than three psukim left in a parashia. So now we have the statement, which Shmuel leans on for his opinion, which is, Levi, pachot migim psukim, just like we don't start a parshia less than three psukim away from the beginning, so too, when it comes to a parsha, we don't leave over less than three psukim. Why would you think otherwise? Because when it comes to the Tanakama about starting a parshia with less than three psukim, he is totally fine with that. That's because he says when you have this situation where you have five psukim, the first one read three. The next aliyah, you give him the two psukim at the end of that parsiyah, which you're forced to do because they've stopped incorrectly, and then you just read one pasuk into the next parsha. So he allows you to start a parsiyah without going three psukim in. Machmire, yeshomrim. In that case, the say, no way, you have to read at least three psukim into the parsiyah. Shiur, leaving over less than three psukim to machmir tanakama, where the tanakama himself says you can't do that, and that's the first part of the breita. Where it says that if you have five psukim, you can only put one aliyah there. So it's clear that he believes you can't leave over less than three psukim. And he's machmir there to say no way. Yet when it comes to the beginning of a parshiah, he says, three psukim, you don't need to go in. You can just go in one pasuk. That's not a problem. So then, lo koshekein de machmire yeshomim. And certainly the yeshomim, in a case where they don't allow you to start with less than three psukim, then certainly they're not going to let you end with less than three psukim. So, you can see from the Tanakama the fact that the Tanakama is more machmir, about leaving less than three psukim, over starting a partial with less than three psukim, then certainly the Eshomim, who are machmir for starting with less than three psukim, then certainly they're not going to allow you to finish with less than three psukim. So Gemara explains why would you have a Havamina to say otherwise? Madotema, yotzim lo it's more common for people to come late to shul or walk in the middle of laning than it is to leave in the middle of laning. The manchei sefer Torah People are not comfortable just walking out and leaving the sefer Torah open. That's disrespectful. So people might come late. That's a more common occurrence. But here, leaving is a less common occurrence. So therefore, the Yeshomim might say, when it comes to reading three psukim at the start of an aliyah, that we're going to make sure that you read full three psukim into the parashiyah for the nichnasim, the people coming in, so they see that you covered three psukim. On the other hand, for people leaving, that's a rare occurrence. So maybe we won't worry about leaving less than three psukim in a parasha, and you can even do less than three. Kamash Malan, that we worry about both of those. Despite the fact that the yotzim are less common than the nichnasim, nevertheless, we still worry about both. And therefore, we're careful to not start with less than three psukim and a parshiyah, because then the next individual comes in, is going to think that the previous aliyah was two psukim, or the person walks in, in the middle of the aliyah, according to the ritva, might think that this aliyah started at the beginning of Parshia and is only two psukim. And we don't leave less than three psukim because somebody who's leaving might think the next aliyah is going to be less than three psukim if you leave less than three psukim. The Tanakama, Maishna Delo. So now we have to understand the Tanakama's logic. He says you're not allowed to leave less than three psukim in a parsha. That's why he says when you have five, you can only have one aliyah. The Yotzim, because of those people that leave early. why do we allow you to start less than three psukim into a because he says you just add one pasuk for the next parsha and you're fine. Why don't we say there, Why don't we have a for those that are coming in late? The person who's coming in has the whole tibor in front of him. If he's wondering or perplexed about what they just did, or he thinks it's strange, he'll just ask. And he can ask people to ask because he has an audience there and people who are in the shul and will clarify for him that we don't do less than three psukim and that the reason that we went a little bit into the next parashiyah, is because we already read two psukim from the previous parshiyah for this individual. On the other hand, the person who leaves has nobody to ask. And ever once he's left, he is going to go off with his assumption that the next aliyah is less than three psukim, and never clarify it, and then you will think you can have an aliyah at less than three psukim. Shalach braid rova, the Rav Yosef. So Rabba, the son of Rav, sends to Rav Yosef, Hilchata mai, what's the aloha? Shalach Rabbi Rav Yosef sends the aloha back, Hilchata doleg, dolgan. So this is what we went over at the end of yesterday's daf. That the locha is like Rav and not like Shmuel. That we repeated pasuk and the one who repeats the pasuk is Emtsayi dolgan. Rashi over here says that that is referencing to the mamadot. That the Gemara here is discussing the mamadot and this is the conclusion with regards to mamadot. And therefore it's not conclusive with regards to Rosh Chodesh. Then then leaves open the question as to what we do with Rosh Chodesh. That's one possibility. Other Ishonim, like the Rif. And many of the Rishonei Ashkenaz believe that the Gemara over here is addressing Rosh Chodesh as well. And that is because generally you don't have a, the Hilchot of the mamadot The are only relevant when the Zman of Beit HaMikdash is Kayyam. And since the Beit HaMikdash was already destroyed when Rabbi Yosef and Rabbar are discussing this, then why would they speak about Aloha that deals with the Mamadot? They were obviously speaking about Rosh Chodesh because that's the practical Aloha. That must be what they're speaking about. the other hand, the Ramban claims that that's not necessarily true. Because we have Halihuchot to when it has ramifications or Hashlachot to practical halacha. And that's one of these instances here. Because whatever you conclude with regards to the even though it's not going to be practical, it has implications for practical questions like Rosh Chodesh. How do we deal with Rosh Chodesh? And therefore that raises the issue as to what is the proper conduct with regards to Rosh Chodesh and we discussed that yesterday, that the rifts opinion is the way that the Ramah Paskins, which is that when it comes to Rosh Chodesh, the Kohen gets the first three psukim, Aleph through Gimel. The Levi goes over the third pasuk, pasuk Gimel, and he reads Dalet and Hay as well. Then the Israel reads the remainder of the first Parsha that has eight psukim, which means that there's three psukim left there, which is Vav Zayin Chet. And then he reads Ted and Yud of Yom HaShabbat. And then the final Aliyah, the Israel again, for his Rosh Chodesh, that's the last five psukim from Rashi Chod Shechem. That's the breakdown that the riff suggests. He noted that the Ramban was upset about the riff's solution because of the fact that even when you're delayed there, when you start the second Aliyah, you're leaving less than two psukim from the beginning and you're not solving anything. And so therefore, the Ramban thinks that maybe you should just read four for the first Aliyah, four for the second Aliyah, then it'll be Yom HaShabbat, two psukim for the third Aliyah, plus one psukim to Rashi Chod Shechem. And then the Last Aliyah will be the remainder of our Sheikhod Sheikhem. And even though you're going to run into a problem of leaving over a pasuk, he says, well, better not to be doleg and repeat a pasuk, and then just be in violation of starting to a partial less than three psukim, that's less of an issue than you, the riff, was doing doleg, and still has the problem that you're starting a partial less than two psukim from the beginning. So he says, I like my solution better. And what about the fact that the Gemara here says doleg? He says like Rashi. The doleg means, with the mamadot, that's not necessarily a solution for Rosh Chodesh, you can have other solutions for Rosh Chodesh. Then we noted the graz solution that is found in Masechet Sofrim, which avoids the problem that the Ramban raises with the Rif, and still does delay, which is that the first aliyah is three psukim, the second aliyah is five psukim, so you finish off the tamid, then the third aliyah repeats the last three psukim of Parshat Tamid, and then reads two psukim from Yom Shabbat, and then the fourth aliyah is Roshay Chod Shechem. so the Graw finesses out of having ever someone start less than three psukim away from the end of a Parshah, or finishing off less than two, three psukim away from the beginning of a Parshah, he never has that issue because of the way he does it. The problem or the weakness in the Graz position is that it deleg in the Gemara seems to indicate a repetition of one Pasuk. Over here the Grah is having you repeat three Psukim and not just one Pasuk in order to get the minimum three Psukim you need for the third Aliyah. But obviously he thinks that's preferable than having the problem of violating the Gzera, Yishim HaNiknasim, Um Yishim The Tazrit over here raises a number of issues with regards to some of our practices, one of them that he raises is with regards to reading on a Tanit. He says that with the reading on Tanit, of Vayichal, that starts less than two psukim away from the beginning of a parshia So the what says, well, that's an issue. How come when you come in, you start Vayichal, you have less than two psukim before that? And now people are going to think that you can have an aliyah that's a little less than two psukim. So the same thing is true on Cholomai Pesach. After the first day of Pesach, when we read the, the Korban, that's brought every day on Pesach. We don't start from we start from we start from and he says, well, that's also within two psukim of the previous parshia. So Tolstoy gives an answer, which is that since it's a fixed structure, people aren't going to make a mistake. The truth is that they are unlikely to make a mistake because this is the first aliyah. And so most people are going to be aware, even if they walk in late, that this is the first aliyah and therefore they'll have no mistaken assumption or be misled to believe that the previous aliyah was less than two psukim. So that's Tosafot's answer that when you know something is done in a certain way all the time, people already know that that's the situation and they're not going to make a mistake about it or they'll know that we're starting there and therefore there's no previous aliyah. Many of the Achonim point out that what Tosafot's questions don't even get off the ground because in our Sifrei Torah, when it comes to cholamoy Pesach, Bikraftem is the fourth pasuk after the beginning of that parashiyah. There are three psukim. And then B'ikraptem is the fourth pasuk. And the same is true with regards to the parsha Vayechal. In our Sifrei Torah, Vayechal is four psukim away from the Parshia. There's no parashiyah, two psukim away from it. So the issues that are raised by Tosafot, even though he has an answer for them, nevertheless, in our Sifrei Torah, the way that we have the parashiyot, the P'tucha by Vayechal, and the Stuma by Parshat Pinchas for Cholomoy Pesach, both of them are... Three, four sukim away from the parsha, and they don't present a problem for us. Those what then raises the issue with regards to cholam sukot, which is then much more difficult issue, and that is number one in Eretz Yisrael. We read the same aliyah over and over again four times, which is the equivalent of delay. And we said that you can only do delay when it's absolutely necessary. Why is it necessary there? Maybe you could read other days from Cholomoed and that would be at least topically relevant so why do we keep repeating the same aliyah and in Chutzlar it's where we discuss at the end of Gemara and Sukkah about the different opinions and the way that we pass from the Ramah which is slightly different but basically on the same trend is that on the first day of Cholamoed you read for the first aliyah for the second aliyah for the third aliyah, the third aliyah and then you repeat for the fourth aliyah so you're again repeating something that you already read beforehand. Toswell doesn't really answer the question here. But for Eretz Yisrael, you could answer that they only read the relevant day of Cholom Oed. The fact that we don't deviate from that at all shows that we only want to read that day. And maybe that can, can be as if EF There's no other possibility because we only want to read that day. In Chutzlar, it's where they have a little more flexibility because they already have a Sveika Dioma. So they're already going to read two days then they let a little more go, and they read a third day, which is not relevant to this topic, but then they go back in the fourth and and read the first two days again, and that might again be for people to know, what is the proper days, that it's Yomashini, Yomash Yom, HaShini, Yom HaShishi is the Sveik of the Yoma, therefore we go back, we just kept reading, and we read of Yom Khamishi, then it would be difficult to understand, what was the real day, or the real Sveik of the Yoma, that we were dealing with, in addition when you get to the end, when it's Yom HaShishi and Yom HaShvi'i, you're going to have a much harder time dealing with that, and then you're going to end up having a couple of days where you read the same thing over and again, and it won't be clear or identifiable which day it is. So maybe because of those reasons that it's also Yif Shar, that they're doleg, that they repeat the psukim that they read previously for the Aliyah, both in Eretz Yisrael and in Chutzlaretz. And that question about repeating psukim actually comes out to be Machlok et tzradim, and Ashkenazim, where in the Kriyat Torah for Shabbat, the Shokhan Aruch in Reish Pei Bet, Tzif Bet says, you can repeat psukim, even though the person coming up for the next aliyah reads the same Sukim as the previous aliyah, when they had special Shabbatot for Chatanim, or for other reasons of smachot, that they needed lots of aliyot, you can repeat the same Sukim and give an aliyah for the same Sukim that were read previously. And there's no problem with that. The Mishaburah does point out that if you want to count to the Minyan Shiva, you want to count to one of the seven people that you get to get the minimum seven aliyot for Shabbat, they have to at least read two or three new psukim in order for them to be counted as a new aliyah. But nevertheless, according to the Shulchan Aruch, that's not a problem to repeat psukim and have someone come up with an aliyah with no new psukim. the other hand, the Ramah says, V'yesho serim, brings down the Mordechai here in Megillah, who says that we do not repeat psukim and give someone aliyah. You need some chidush, you need something new in the aliyah in order to make a brachon and have an aliyah, it says, and that's the practice in Minag Ashkenaz, is that way, with the exception of Simchat Torah, that they have the practice like the Shulchan where we read over and over and over again, the same psukim and give people aliyot, so that's the only exception that the Ramah grants, he does not say it by the case of a chatuna, where the chatan, and there are a lot of people you want to honor, nevertheless, he says that one should make sure that their new psukim in each aliyah, Unlike that sack of the Shokhan Aruch, and that's again a difference between the Ashkenazim and Sephardim with regards to calling up Aliyot. So Gzeiak the Gemara continues with what's said in the Mishnah. Kosheish anything that has a musaf, Yom tov, it has an extra korban musaf, but it's not a yom tov on that day. You read four Aliyot. The Gemara asks now, Tanitzi Bor Bikamo. How many Aliyot do you get on a Tanitzi Bor? Now the Rebenu Tam notes that even though you should be able to learn this from the Gemara and Tanit, because the Gemara and Tanit is talking about a Tanit Zibur over there by the Mamadot, it says that there are three Aliyot. That's what we just discussed earlier on this Amud. Nevertheless, he says that maybe the Mamadot we're only talking about what the Kriyat the Torah is for the Mamad, but there might be a separate Aliyah, a fourth Aliyah that does with the Tanit which the Gemara and Tanit not dealing with, because that's not unique to the Mamadot. There, was just talking about the unique laning for the Mamadot. Maybe there's an extra Aliyah for the Tanit itself. Therefore, that's the Gemara, so fake here. How many Aliyot do you get on a Tanit Sibur? Three or four? Rosh Chodesh, umo'ed, Rosh Chodesh and we already saw, they get four. Dik Kurban Musaf, because they have a Kurban Musaf, they're not a Yom Tov, therefore they get Arba'ah. Of the Lek Kurban Musaf, over here by a Tanit Sibur, there's no Kurban Musaf, Lo, no, you don't get four aliyot, you'd have the regular three aliyot. Over here you also have the addition of a tefillah. Now Rashi claims the addition of the tefillah is anenu, because in the Chazaret HaShats we had an extra brach for anenu, and that's the mosaf ha-tefillah. Other Rishonim discussed the possibility that the mosaf ha was the 24 brachot that we saw in Maseche Tanit, which they used to add on in a Tanit that they used to do 24 instead of 18 brachot. And there are still others that suggest that it's connected to ni'ilah, that there was an extra tefillah that was added on Taniyot Sibur, and therefore the ni'ilah is called the Musaf tefillah. But any one of those, which means that there's an addition to the normal structure of tefillah on a Tanit, maybe that then generates a need for an additional aliyah, like the Kurban Musaf does, for cholam and rosh cholish, and therefore by tanit sibur, you would have four aliyot and not three. And the Ritzvah Roshba asked the same question as the Tam that the mamadot include mosaf tefila; they have an extra and we still only read three aliyot. And they answer the same way that the Rabbein Tam does, which is that the possibility that that's only about the mamadot, but maybe there was a fourth Aliyah that dealt with the tanit that was vayichal tashma poshei chodoshim ubacholosh cholam oeid arba. Our Mishnah says that when it comes to rosh cholish and cholam you have four aliyot. Ha betanit gimel. You would infer from that, which tanit zibur it's not mentioned, only gets three aleiok. Emaresha. Well, that's great if you medayek from the latter part of the Mishnah. But if you medayek from the first part of the Mishnah, it says b'sheni b'chamishib b'shabat b'mincha. Monday, Thursday, and mincha and Shabbat. Korean gimel. There, you get three so there the Tani is not mentioned either you would infer from that that the Tani gets four Aliyot from that Mishnah you can't be midayek anything because Tani is not mentioned it's not mentioned in the list of three it's not mentioned in the list of four so you can't be midayek either way so Tashma let's learn it from here the Rav Iklo the Bavel. Rav came to Bavell on a day that was a krab Sifra. they called him up for an Aliyah and he came to read in the Torah Patach Barich he opened up the Sefer Torah, made a bracha bachar Bonu and then began to read the Torah. Chatim he finished the Aliyah below Boruch, but he didn't make a bracha afterwards. Now, fal kuleyama an payu. Everybody else fell on their faces for tachanun. Rav lo nofala and Rav did not do the filat apayim. So, this latter half of this story, the Gemara will deal with at the end of today's daf. Part that they're speaking about now is Rav coming on a tanit to Bavel and leaning, but only making a bracha rishona not making a bracha achronah. Mikhteh, Rab Yisrael Korah. Rab was Yisrael. He wasn't a Kohen, he wasn't a Levi, he was called up as an Yisrael. So the aliyah that he likely was called up for was for the third aliyah. Ma'itay Khatam below barich. So why did he finish his aliyah and not make a bracha afterwards? Lab Isn't that because they're going to call up someone else after him to take an aliyah? And the way it worked in their days was the person who opened said the bracha rishonah, the person who closed said the bracha achronah. So there's another aliyah there's no reason for him to bring the closing Bracha, it could be done by the next Aliyah. So it says look, Rav Rav was called up for the Mulia of Kohain. Daha Ravuna Kare Ravuna, who was a Talmud Mufak of Rav. And took over the yeshiva of Rav and became the preeminent Talmud Chacham in Bavel after the death of Rav. He, even though he wasn't a Kohen, he got the Iliya of Kohen. Now Bishlam Ravuna Kari B'Kane Da'afilu Rav Ami veRavasi the Kane Chashivei Da'are Yisrael Ravuna. Who was the Rosh Hashiva in Bavel, he was on a greater level, or he was considered to be a Godolador, even greater than Ravami and Ravasi who were Koanim in Eretz Yisrael. And despite the fact that they were Koanim, they deferred to Ravuna, Mikav Kaifle. They were subject to his rulings. Ravuna was such a Godolador that his rulings governed everything that happened in Bavel, not only everything that happened in Bavel, but even that which happened in Eretz Yisrael. And so even Ravami and Ravasi, who were in Eretz Yisrael, who were Kohanim, they were subordinated to the psach of Rav Huna. So that shows you that Rav Huna is considered to be the uncontested Godolador, even in the face of Tamirin Chachamim Kohanim. And therefore, since Mikav Kaifalei the Rav Huna, since they were subject to his rulings, then he was granted the Aliyah of Kohen, because he's the undisputed, uncontested Godolador, And he goes first, because we have a principle that a, Talmud Chocham Mamzer is greater than a Kohen Gadol Amaretz. Now when it comes to Torah erudition, the one who is the greatest Talmud Chocham should go first. Now we have a Takana in order to have Shalom and not to have Eva between parties and fighting, that we have the Kohen goes first and the lady then Israel. But where you have a Talmud Chocham who trumps, then we would give him the Aliyah of Kohen and he would supersede all the Kohanim. Now that's only true when it's an uncontested situation. If you have people where it's not clear who is the Gadolador, or you're going to fight about who's the door then we do not uproot the Kohen and give it to the Talmud Chocham, because then it defeats the whole purpose of the Takana. It's only that we will uproot the Takana, when the giving the Aliyah to the Talmud Chocham will be no different than giving it to the Kohen, because people will not question why you gave him the first Aliyah. So the time of Rav Huna, I understand why Rav Huna was called up as the Kohen, because he was the uncontested Godot. And the Rav, when it comes to Rav, Shmuel kana hava So by the case of Rav, you have Rav who is the Godol in bavel, but you also have Shmuel, who's a contemporary of his, and Shmuel is a Kohen. And Rav used to defer to Shmuel. He gave kavod, he would let Shmuel walk in. Before him, when they went into places, he always gave deference to Shmuel. So if that's the case, we're not going to give Rav the Aliya of Kohen. And from Rashi, it sounds like the person has to be the uncontested Gadol Ador in the entire region, not just in his city, but in the entire area, because Shmuel and Rab lived in different cities. Shmuel was in Nardal and Rab was in Surah. Nevertheless, because he deferred to Shmuel's in Kavod, even his own city, he couldn't take the aliyah of Kohen, because there was a Kohen Shmuel who was greater than him in the region of Bavel or in the country of Bavel. So if that's the case, how can you claim that Rab got the first aliyah? So Shmuel nami mikaf kaif leil rab. The truth is that Shmuel was subordinated to Rab when it came to Aloha. Rav came from Eretz Yisrael after he got bumped out of Eretz Yisrael because of the altercations there. He had to run away to Bavel. He returned to Bavel. And in Bavel, he became, was quickly recognized as being the Gadolador. And even Shmuel recognized him as the Gadolador. So then why is Rav giving deference to Shmuel if he's the Gadolador? That's because of an incident that took place. Rav gave deference to Shmuel because of the fact that he had mistreated him in one situation, which we'll discuss in a second, that's only true when Shmuel was there did he give him deference. But if he wasn't in front of Shmuel, he would not give deference to Shmuel, meaning that Rab was greater than Shmuel, wasn't a question. Just in front of Shmuel, because he felt bad about what he had done, he gave deference to Shmuel. Now that's based on a story in the Gemara and Shabbat, that when Rab first came to Bavel, he had a stomach ailment. Shmuel was a doctor, and he treated Rav, and when he treated Rav, he gave him some sort of liquid to drink that gave a huge stomachache, and he didn't allow him to relieve himself because that was part of the cure. And Rav was in such writhing pain that he cursed whoever this person was that gave him this medicine, and he said that they shouldn't have children. And it turns out in the end that it was Shmuel, who was the doctor who gave him the medication, and he was doing it for his own benefit. And Rav afterwards was sorry that he had said that because his curse came true, even though he was wrong in applying it. But we saw earlier, and here certainly where it's, even though it was misplaced or is it misspoken, it's pretty clear that Shmuel had daughters from other stories that we're going to see later on in Shas, but he never had any sons. And therefore, Rush Rab felt bad because he thought it was because of him that that was the case. Never used to give deference to Shmuel is to kind of make up for what he had done or the wrong that he had committed towards Shmuel. So now, Gemara says, The answer is makes a lot of sense that Rab was given the first aliyah that he was called up for the first aliyah, If you think he was called up for the third aliyah, Why did he make a bracha before he started to lean? Meaning that in the old way that they did it, the first aliyah made the first bracha and the last aliyah made the last bracha. Rab's coming from with shlishi, and he's the middle aliyah, why is he making an opening bracha? The Gemara says, Oh, l'achar takana. Rab was only after the takana. After the takana, every person that gets called out for an aliyah opens with a bracha. Because So wait a minute, if that's the case, then even afterwards you should make a bracha. The takana was, because somebody might leave, somebody might come in, so we make a new bracha for each aliyah, and we make a closing bracha for each aliyah. So if that's the case, why did Rav only give an opening bracha, not a closing bracha? It says, It was different where Rav was. I mean, in Rav's yeshiva, or where Rav Davin, it was different. People came in late, but nobody left. So people came in late, so you need to have a bracha Rishona in order to be sure those people who came in late can hear the bracha Rishona. But with regards to a bracha Chonah, you don't need to do that because nobody left early. And so therefore, you can't prove anything from the fact that Rav made a bracha beforehand and not afterwards, it could have been because you got the aliyah of Kohen, or it also could be because you got Shlishi, and we didn't suspect anybody would leave, and therefore, even after the new Takana, you only made a bracha Rishonah, not a bracha Acheronah, with regards to the aliyah of the Torah, and therefore you can't prove anything, so we don't know if you got Kohen, or you got the third aliyah, if you got Kohen, then maybe there were only three aliyah old. if you got the third aliyah, then maybe there was a fourth aliyah, because he didn't say a closing bracha, but you can't say for certain, and therefore we have no proof from this case of Rav, on any day where there's a problem that it will ruin the workday, it will eat into the workday, that we don't have a longer davening, and you only have three aliyot. On a day where people are already desisting from work, they're already desisting from work, for example, then you have four aliyot, Shmaminah, that's pretty conclusive, as Rashi notes over here, that when it comes to a tanit tzibor, rov taniyot tzibor, mutarim you can do malachah, with the exception of the rain fasts, where the middle rain fast, and the latter rain fast, you're not allowed to go to work, but other taniyot tzibor, you're allowed to go to work, and he says the same with Tishabab, because we know from the Gemara and Psachim in the fourth parak that not doing malachah on Tisha B'av is a subject to a minog. it's places that had the Minog, so there's no inherent malachah. It's a minag not to do melacha, and therefore it's, it's not a day of Easter melacha. Even though one who does malacha on Tisha B'av, in Enoroyevma and Siman Bracha, he doesn't see a Siman Bracha from it. Nevertheless, it's not something that's inherent to the day where there's an Easter melacha, and therefore since it's a day that where there will be bitul melacha, we only have three aliot on Tishubab, and we only have three aliot on Atanit Sibur. That end by Cholam Oed and Rosh Chodesh, which are days that have desisting from malacha already, then we allow Daveni to go a little longer, so we have a fourth Aliyah. As Rashi points out here, that's easy to understand by Cholomoed, he mentioned that by the Mishnah as well, because you have Malachah devar you're allowed to do some malacha for things that are devar that are going to be losses, but otherwise there's no permission to do Malachah. is a partial Moed, and therefore there is desisting from malacha, and so that makes sense. But on Rosh Chodesh, where do we ever see there, there's an Easter malacha by Rosh Chodesh? That's one of the character traits of Rosh Chodesh, that it is a mo'ed without Easter Malacha. That's what the Gemara in Arachin says when it speaks about halal on Rosh Chodesh, why there's no halal on Rosh Chodesh. It's a day that has a Musaf, but has no Easter Asiat Malacha. So where does the Gemara come off saying that Rosh Chodesh is a day that's not bitul Malacha Le'am because people are already desisting from work. Tosavot over here says it, and Rashi says a similar thing, that it's dealing with the women. The women who have a minhag not to do Malacha on Rosh Chodesh, Therefore, there's not a extreme bito malacha on the day because part of the population already is not working on that day. The women have taken upon themselves not to work on Rosh Chodesh. And Rashi quotes the Midrash, as well as Tosafot, that the women did not participate in the Cheta Egel. When their husbands came to them to give their jewelry or donate their jewelry to the Egel, they were unwilling to give it up. They stood fast by a Kodesh Baruchu and said, we're not going to worship the Egel. And therefore, a Kodesh Baruchu, as a reward for that, gave them The Rosh Chodesh, and they're resting from melacha or not doing melacha on Rosh Chodesh. As Rashi says over here, Amrullah and the wives said to their husbands, You want to make this idol that has no power to save us? God gave them the reward in this world, that they will keep Rosh Chodesh more than the men, meaning that they will have a Minagna to do melacha as opposed to the man. And like we say in Kiddush Levano, that the humans are going to like the moon in the future so to the, women, so to the women and so therefore they were rewarded with that the problem with that is that the women aren't generally the ones who go to shul they're not the ones dealing with the laning so why is their eastern malacha impactful or influential in having four aliot on Rosh Chodesh. Therefore, Rashi brings here at the end that they pasuk in Shmuel Aleph, where Davina Melech does not show up to the meals with Sha'ol, because he's afraid Sha'ol's going to kill him, and Yonatan and he make the pact to see what Shaul thinks, and they have this whole secret way through the shooting of the arrows, which is the Av Torah from Achara Khodesh. Over there, it says that they had two days of Rosh Chodesh. So first of all, that's problematic from the outset, which is in the time of the Mikdash, where they did a pi'ariyah. Why do they have two days of Rosh Chodesh? Because it says on the first day, Shaul was not suspicious of David's absence, because he thought he was Mikre Lila, he was Tameh, and he couldn't come to eat the Korban. But on the second day, he says, why isn't he here? And then he challenges Yonatan, and then he gets mad at Yonatan that he allowed David to escape at the cost of David and Melech being the one who's going to now supplant Yonatan as the king of Israel. And Shaul is trying to kill him to stop that. So he gets angry at Yonatan. Then Yonatan goes out and tells David that he's got to run away because Shaul wants to kill him. So in that story, it says that it was the day before Rosh Chodesh, because we read the Torah of Machar Chodesh, And that means that the day that they were speaking was Er Rosh Chodesh. The Targum of that day is Yom It's a day of Chol. So as opposed to Rosh Chodesh, which is not a day of Chol, Yom Chol means a day of work. Implied from that Targum is that Rosh Chodesh was not a day of work. So Rashi says, based on that, it seems to be that there was some practice not to work on Rosh Chodesh. And the Turi Evan makes a suggestion that he thinks in the time of Beit HaMikdash that Rosh Chodesh had a different status. And then in the time of Beit HaMikdash, there was actually an isur melacha on Rosh Chodesh that doesn't exist today because we do not have korbanot and that the Kurban Musaf, which was the Kurban of all of Christ Israel, and a special Kurban by Rosh Chodesh, generated an Easter Molochah. So again, Rashi, Tosafot, and other rishonim speak about the minog of women not to do Molochah. Rashi brings the alternative, which is also found in the Rabbeinu Yonatan, that there was a broader practice of men and women not to do malachah and Rosh Chodesh, but only the women continued it after the Kurban Abayit. Or there's the Turi Eben who said that there was a full-fledged, when the Beit HaMikdash was extant. And after the Churban Abayt, the women carried on that practice of the Minag, again, because of the reward for their not participating in the ego. So now the Gemara concludes from this Tashma, this Braita that we just brought over here, that with regards to Tani Tzibur and Tisha it's pretty straightforward that you only have three Eliyot and not four. Our Mishnah seems to indicate otherwise, meaning that I would come to a different conclusion than the Braita that you just brought. Ze'aklal, our Mishnah brings a principle at the end any day that has Musaf, or Kurban Musaf, we think, but it's not a holiday, it doesn't have Easter Malacha, what does that come to include? Isn't that coming to include the days of Tanitzibor and Tisha B'av? Because, as we'll see in a second, there's nothing else to include. We already mentioned explicitly in the Mishnah, Kolamoid and Rosh Chodesh. So they can't include those days, so what's the Zaklaw coming to include? It must be coming to include something else. That something else must be a tanit and Tishabav, which would imply that our Mishnah thinks you have four Aliyot. Marseillez Ravashi, According to Ravashi, who's the author of our Mishnah? Velo It's not the Tanakama, not Rabbiyosi, the Tanya of the Braita that speaks about Tishabav. if Tishabab falls out on a Monday or Thursday, Kareem Gimel, according to the Tanakama, you have three Aliyot. Um, and the maftir is the third aliyah. He is the maftir. If it falls out on a Tuesday or Wednesday, you have one aliyah, and the maftir is the one who got the aliyah. So there's one aliyah that's both the aliyah and the maftir according to the Tanakhama. Rabbi Yossi says, we always say that you have three aliyot and one maftir. Now, the over here discusses how do you know that when it says maftir echad it's one of the three, and not the four. So Talisman says that, based on the Tanakama's position, because according to the Tanakama, it's clear that on a Tuesday and Wednesday, there's only one Aliyah. And even if you say Maftir is a second Aliyah, it's less than a normal Monday and Thursday. So then when Tishabot falls out on a Monday and Thursday, the Tanakama is not going to say that it has more Aliyot than a normal Monday and Thursday. So therefore his three Aliyot, on Monday and Thursday, must subsume within them the Torah, And so therefore on his Tuesday and Wednesday, so too, the one Aliyah must subsume the Torah, And just like by the Tanakama, the maftir is subsumed in the aliyot. So to Rabbi Yossi, only my arguments with him in regards to Tuesday and Wednesday, he's going to say the same thing. You always have three aliyot and one maftir. And so his maftir is one of the three. So according to that, there's nobody who thinks that there are four aliot on Tisha So then what are we going to do with the The Za'aklal is not coming to include rosh Chodesh or kolom the Mishnah explicitly mentions that Rosh Chodesh and get four aliyot. The Zeh Klau is not coming to include something extra. It's just a memory aid. It is just to help you consolidate the situations in which you have four aliyot. There's a Klau. Here we give you a principle to follow. Now the Bavli, in most cases with the Mishnah, every time it sees a Zeh Klau, it thinks it must be adding something more than the Mishnah had. The easier reading of the Ze'a is that the mission is coming to summarize and give you a principle that you can lean on for the details that I explicated on. And that's what the Gemara here concludes when it has no other choice, that that's the Ze'a But in other places, the Bavli is set, I'm ensuring that they know what the Ze'a Klau comes to include. And the reason that you need this Simana Ba'ama is the low tema, so that you don't come to the conclusion, Yom Tov the mo'ed ke'adad Yom Tov are the same. Remember this principle, called the tafile milta mechavrei, tafile gavrei yatera. Any day that has something more than another day, it will also have some extra aliyah. Hilkach, parosh cholesh, vecholam moeid, diko kurban musaf. So it adds the extra of the kurban musaf, not yisr malacha. Korin arba, you get four aliyot. Yom tov la surbasilat malacha. Yom tov adds on, besides the kurban musaf, yisr malacha. It's a moeid. Chamisha, you get five aliyot that has the same thing as a Yom Tov, but the punishment for violating Yom Kippur is karei, as opposed to the violation of Yom Tov, which is a lav. It also has the fact that Yom kippurim there is no ochel nefesh, which is not true by Yom Tov. So therefore, Shisha, you have six aliyot on Yom Kippur. Shabbat, that has above Yom kippurim not only the Easter Malachah, but the Easter Malachah is subject to an Easter skilah, then Shiva, you get seven aliyot. And so that's what the Zal is coming to do. It's just setting down the principle that since have something above a normal day, they get one extra aliyah. But they're not as good or as great as Yompto Tov. Never, they only get four and not five. Gufa. So now the Gemara goes back to the story of Rav and says, He got up to read, he got an aliyah. He opened up the sefer and said a bracha Chatam, when he finished the aliyah, lo borich. He didn't make a bracha Now full, kuleama on payu. Everybody else fell down onto the ground to say takonu to do nefilat apayim for rablo nafal and rab did not fall on his face my tama rablo nafal why did rab not do nefilat apayim so the first possibility is ritzpar sheler v'neim hayta it was a stone floor betanya and the breita says ve'eved maskito lo to do baratzchem l'shtachavot aleh you're not allowed to have a stone floor upon which you bow in your land alei yata mishtachaveh b'artzechem. You're not allowed to bow down to it in your land, but you're allowed to do it on the stone floor in the Beit HaMikdash. The idea of the Breitah is because you might have thought that the Evan Maskeet is only a restriction inside of Eretz Yisrael. So the Breitah comes to clarify for you that Eretz is not Eretz Yisrael. Eretz means anywhere you live, because Eretz comes to exclude Beit HaMikdash, not to exclude Chutz Laaretz. And therefore the Evan Maskeet restriction applies anywhere except for in the Beit HaMikdash. Kedula, which is similar to Ula's position, the Loasra Torah, Avanim Bilvat. The Torah only proscribes the ability to bow down on a stone floor. And so therefore, since it was a stone floor in the shul where Rav was, he didn't do Nifilat Apayim because he couldn't fall down on the floor. That was a problem because of the lab in the Torah. it says, Wait a minute, if that's the case, why did Rav was the only one who didn't, do what about the rest of the congregation? Why did they do nefilatapayim? So, kameh the rav habay. The stone floor was in front of rav. So the area which was a stone floor was right by rav. Anywhere else, it was carpeted, or it had some other flooring, and never wasn't a problem. So, le, lise tzibura. Why does the rav just move? He can move from where he's standing, where there's a stone floor, to where the rest of the tzibura is, where there's no stone floor. pola and then he can do the He didn't want to bother the tzibur, as Rashi says over here. If he went out to the Tibor, everybody would have to stand up for his kavod, and that would interrupt the apayim. So Rod felt it better to stay in his place, not do apayim, and avoid the problem. Another possible reason why Rab didn't bow down was because Rab, Rab, when he didn't feel at the bottom, he used to prostrate himself out completely flat. And like Ula's qualification, that the only restriction by the Torah's law of Em Maskit Ula already qualified that said that's only by stone. And his second qualification about the Dindoraita is that's only true when you fully prostrate yourself. So that's the restriction, and, and Rav was trying to do Pishutya Daim That was his practice. So today, modify that. Don't do the full prostration. Just bow down and put your head to the ground. He preferred not to change his Minag. Now, from this second piece over here, the combination of the two positions of Ula, I tell you that the Isur righta is only when you do Pishutya Daim Raglaim. Only when you do a full prostration. And it's on Avanim, and it's on stone outside of the Migdash. That's the only time it's in Isu d'oraita. The second answer seems to imply that the problem here is he's doing Pishud Yadayim Raglayim on stone. And that was the problem, because he was then going to be in violation of Isu d'oraita. But that implies that in the first answer that the Gemara gave, that when it's a Ritzpat Avanim that maybe there's an issue of the Rabbanan for doing something that's not pishut yadaim regalim. Because the Gemara never qualified or never stated that that's what Rab was doing in the first case. He just said he was doing a filatopayim. And if you assume not like the second answer, that it was pishut yadaim regalim, but simply a that would imply that Rab believes that there's an Easter of ishtachavaya, of bowing down on a stone floor, or there's an Easter of doing pishut yadaim regalim on a non-stone floor. That's the way the loch is brought down which will discuss at the end of today's sugya. now there's a third possibility as to why Rav didn't do Nafil HaTapayim is, Adam Chashuv shiny? An important person is different. This is something we saw in the Gemara in Tanit on Daf Yudalit, which is Ki Drabi Al-Azhar. D'Amar Rav al Adam Chashuv Rasha polo Panav. An important person is not allowed to fall down on his face doing Nafil HaTapayim. Al-Him Kei Nehnei Yoshua Binun. Unless he's answered like Yoshua Binun, D'Khtiv, because the Pasuk says, by Yeshua Benun, after the defeat at the hands of the Ai, he falls down in front of Hashem, and he davens to Hashem, and it says, Get up! And then instructs him what he needs to do. Now Rashi over here says that Yeshua was doing the wrong thing, that he shouldn't have been no fellow and that's why he tells him, Get up! As Rashi says over here, You shouldn't have done this. So only if you were certain that you're going to be answered, should you do such a thing. On the other hand, the Rubeno Kanano says, Kol me al panav, kasher ki Yoshua. That is not as Kashir Yoshua, Shimmi Pol Aupanav, Yahularam Minah Shamayim Kumlach, al yipol, that he'll get a response telling him, get up and don't fall down, meaning that it was a positive. Yoshua was the example of somebody positive who was answered, that Hashem told him, don't fall down, get up. If you don't have that confidence that if you and you go down to at the bottom, they're going to tell you to get up, and they're going to respond to your Tfilah, and you shouldn't be doing it. Or others point out to the contrast between Yoshua and the remainder of this name that obviously this name fell with Yoshua, yet Hashem only responds to Yoshua. And so since he only responded to Yoshua, that shows you that unless you are certain you can be responded to, you should be not fall down, as opposed to this kanim who did the wrong thing because they weren't asked to stand up or the shem did not respond to them. Now, as Toswah points out over here, he qualifies this from the Yushalmi. His restriction only applies when he's davening on behalf of the Tzibur, If it's his own private tfilah, for it's himself, that's not a problem. So the question or the issue seems to be that if the Tsibur is relying on this individual for the tfilah, then in order for him to embarrass himself and demean himself and to quote a Torah, he should only do that if he's certain that he's going to be answered, because otherwise it will diminish or demean his standing in front of the congregation, because they're going to say, this person can't get the response that he needs to get. And then the people will curse him or not treat him properly, or... It's a problem of Chilol Hashem, that this person who supposedly presented themselves as a Tammar is not able to get answered by a Kodesh Baruchul. So a person should only fall down in that manner if he's going to get the response that he expects from the falling or doing the Nefilah Tapayim, because that way the Sibor will respect him like they did by Yoshua Binun. Now the question is here, and then we're going to answer this in a second again when we come to the end of the sugya, whether this is only true when a person does Pishud Yadayim Raglayim, if he prostrates himself. or Is this true of any Nefilah apayim? that it is problematic if the Gadol or the Dham Chashuv does it and he's not going to be answered. So Now the Gemara goes on to a segue and then we'll come back to this topic. Tan banan Kida, whenever the Torah speaks about a Kida, al-Apayim. That means that the face is touching the ground. Shnema batikod bat Sheva apayim aretz. That Bat Sheva put her face to the ground in front of the king when she approached the king about anointing Shlomo Melech as the king. Kriya al-Birkayim. Bowing down is on your knees. B'cheinu omer... It says by Shlomo Melach after he finishes giving a tefillah for the dedication of the Mikdash, it says, Vakam He gets up from bowing on his knees. So you see that Kriya is on the knees. Bowing down as a hish that's prostrating oneself, because that's what Yaakov says to Yosef about the dream. Artsa means that you fly down on the ground. So the hishtachavot is pishut yadayim v'ragayim. The Tzvot says he's not sure why the Gemara brought these proof texts, because there are alternate texts that seem to say otherwise. He says, Lomi might be ay The Gemara has this as a and not from the psukim. Da'aktiv nami in Ishayo, it says, that they will bow down onto the land in front of you. So it sounds like that, shhtachavaya means putting your face to the ground. Elhochi gomer leh This is the mesorah that they have and that this is the right pasuk to associate with each of these events. But Mahershoah points out that maybe it's not what the Tosvot says, because Ishtachavaya, by definition, includes a paim. In subsumed in Ishtachavaya are the other things. You have to have a kriya, you have to have a paim ala aretz, and you have pishut yedai maglaim. It subsumes all the others. So when Ishayahu says that when you're going to put your face to the ground when you do Ishtachavaya, that's true as well. And it's not to the exclusion of the fact that that is Pishud Yadayim Raglayim. It's just taking or speaking about one component of the prostrating oneself that is also included in Ishtachavaya. Now the Gemara brings here the story that we just saw recently in Tanit and Dab Hei. It's also found in the Gemara in Sukkah, which is Levi, Achveh, Kida, Kameh, the Rabbi. Levi performed a Kida in front of Rabbi. He was injured. He became lame. He limped afterwards because he dislocated his hip. The way Rashi explains it over here is that This kida was bowing down one's face to the ground without ever supporting one's weight, which is that the person bowed down, their face to the ground, and they put their thumbs in the ground just to hold themselves up. But obviously the thumbs have no support. They're not strong enough to lift the person up. Then once the person's touched their face to the ground, they have to bring themselves upright again. And when bringing themselves upright, all the pressure and all the strain is on their loins, on their waist, because they're going to have to pull themselves back up without the help of their hands. And that pulling back up is what caused the dislocation of his hip. So the going down or bowing down was not the difficulty, because the one just goes down and puts their face to the ground. It was then the uprighting of oneself, where they had to straighten their body out, and now they only have their thumbs in the ground, so there's nothing giving them support to push their weight back up. That means if they pull themselves back up through their shrunk, and their waist, and that causes the dislocation of his hip, and we know that Levi was very tall, so that might have exacerbated the situation. In the Gemara and Sukkah, and in Tanit, it sounds a little bit like the fact that he was doing some sort of push-up, where he's able to jump down and touch the ground with his face, and then pop back up, just on his thumbs, meaning that all this strength was done again from the center of his body, that he went down and came back up, but from Moirashi Rashi describes it over here, his feet didn't leave the ground on the way down, it was just the upwriting of himself that caused the problem. The Gemara says, that's what caused Levi to have this injury. Lazar, Person should not speak improperly towards a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Gadol Someone, this is a reference to Levi, spoke inappropriately towards a Kodesh Baruch Hu. He became lame. He was injured by that fact. And who is that? That's Levi. And that's based on the story that is told in Tanit that when the rain wasn't coming, Levi says to Akadosh Baruch Hu, it's as if you went back up to the Shemaim and forgot about us. So he was saying things that were very harsh towards Akadosh Baruch Hu, that he didn't bring the rain, and therefore Rabbi Lazar believes that he was punished for speaking and in such a brazen fashion towards Akarish Baruch Hu, that he disappeared now, is hanging up in the sky and doesn't listen to us anymore. So my answer is like it did in all these other places, Ha, V'ha, Garmalei, that both are the cause. The reason that Levi was punished is because of the way that he spoke towards Akash Baruch But Akash Barucho, when he punishes, he does it in a time when a person's already in a precarious position. And the Kidah put him into a precarious position. So while he was in a precarious position, Hashem punished him for that which he had done and spoken inappropriately. So now, Amar I saw Abai the the Matzle They used to go onto their side. So Rashi claims over here, al am. They didn't do straightforward apayim. Because a person's not allowed to do apayim. Rashi sees this statement about bayin rova as a continuation of the Gemara previous to this, not about the Breitta that we just brought about bang down, but the previous Breitta that said that And Adam Chashuv can't do Nefilat Apayim. So Abayin Rava solved that problem by doing it on their side, not doing a full Nefilat Apayim. And that is the source for the way that we do Nefilat Apayim today, where we do it in a sort of adjusted or modified Nefilat Apayim. And they do the modified Nefilat Apayim to overcome the issue of Adam Chashuv. That's the way Rashi reads it. But there are other Rishonim, again, as we pointed out before, who noted that there's a problem of Ishtachavaya on a stone floor, even if it's not Pishud Yadayim Raglaim, or Pishud Yadayim Raglaim prostrating on a floor that is not abanim that's a Takanadu Rabbanan from the first answer that we saw. Based on that, that's what many of the rishonim believe that Bayin Rubber were coming to solve. They weren't dealing with the Adam choshev issue, they were dealing with the problem of abanim or Ebn Maskit. How do they avoid the problem of bowing down on a stone floor, doing a fill at the pine, not Pishud Yadayim or doing on a non-stone floor, how do they avoid that issue of the Rabbanan? Their answer was, slay at they used to lean on the side. And that's the view of the Rosh, that it's speaking about the issue of even Maskeet, and L'aloha, the Alokha, the Shulchan brings both of these issues down in Kuflamid Aleph, because he points out in Kuflamid Aleph, Aleph, now, Gula told, fell when he falls for Tevilah Tapayim, he does it on his left side. Zerah points out, that's only at Mincha time when he's not wearing Tevilah. But in Shachrit, where he's wearing Tevilah on his left arm, he should favor his right arm to tilt in that direction, so that it's not a Bezoh the Except for lefties, who always then fall on their left arm, because they have Tevilah on their right arm, and so both Vashachrit and Mincha, they'll fall on their left side. And that same Siman, Kuvlam Rav he says, "Ein adam l'chashuv reshayli pola panav kishemit palel laetzibor." That's like Tosafot says when he's diving for the tzibor. El mkenu batuach she'aner ki binun, like our says, haga. And then the Ramah brings down here, "Ein Sulu l'chol adam l'pola panav bishut yadayim raglime." A person cannot do prostrating at all. Afilu ein sham evyimaskit, even if it's not a stone floor. Aval Imnotek notek tzat al tzedo, if he leans slightly to his side, mutar. Then it's permissible. Even if there's no stone floor there, meaning that the way around the problem of non-stone floor to do Pishut Yadayim is to tilt to your side a little bit. And that's what you do on Yom When they fall down, the way Rishaburah says that the Ramah should say, "Oh, Sham Asavim." That they should have something that sits between them and the Karkov. So you have to do one of two things: either you do Pishut Yadayim Raglaim on your side, on a non-stone floor. So you do prostrating on your side, on a non-stone floor, or you do a regular bowing, not prostrating, on a non-stone floor. And how do you create the non-stone floor? By putting something in between you and the ground. So according to this, this is what Matzle was coming, like the Rosh says, to modify the issue of Evan Maskit. And to tell you, there's an issue when it comes to even on non-stone floors. You have to then tilt to the side. Or even on stone floors there's a restriction against bowing, even if it's not Pishud yadayim or and then you have to put something in between you, and that's what the Ramah says on Yom Kippur, we put something in between us in order to avoid that Isud Rabbanan that's mentioned here by the Rosh and by the Chubat HaRivosh. Okay, we're going to stop here by the two dots on the top of Chav Momod